All right, we're going to be in John chapter 9, so please turn there in your Bibles, and uh, we're going to, we're done this series of Jesus Is, and uh, one of the reasons that I believe the Bible, and I love the Bible so much, is not just because it's God's inspired word, which it is, and it's our authority for our faith and our practice, but it's because it deals with some of the hardest issues of life, and it doesn't sweep painful uh, things under the carpet, it, it, it doesn't uh, avoid dealing with things that are provoking or shocking or controversial. In fact, sometimes Jesus went out of his way to promote and create controversy with the Pharisees so that the truth about himself and about their unbelief would show. And uh, it would be a warning to other people to say, is that really how you want to be with a hard heart or... Do you want to uh, use your life to bring glory to God? And so uh, that's really what Jesus was doing. And in John chapter 9, he's dealing with a man who was born blind. Of course, that means he was also blind when he was a baby and when he was a child. And one of the hardest things in life is the suffering of children and the suffering of those who love them. And especially in the... uh, uh, early suffering that turns into a lifetime of suffering, of situations you're not going to pray yourself out of, that you're going to be with. And um, so th- these parents have grief and they have challenges and they raise this boy who uh, was blind since birth. And disabilities are, are incredibly difficult and they're expensive financially and emotionally and relationally. And it's not light or momentary. And, uh, you know, the, the dad's in the situation, of course, the male myth of being, uh, you know, self-determined and having everything under control and being independent is just kind of exploded in the in need of going to medical people and social workers and educators on issues that you never dreamed of. We had recently one of the uh, directors from Chalk, from Children's Hospital of Orange County, here at church, and uh, she made a presentation. And at the end of it, uh, she was mobbed by the parents of special needs children, and uh, they were looking for help and eager for conversation about their concerns and grateful for the support of somebody who has been there. And, uh, you know, it didn't matter if the issue was blindness or autism or Down syndrome or spina bifida or a number of rare and unpronounceable uh, conditions Each has its own particular sorrows and its own peculiar way of turning decades into what you never dreamed or planned it would be. I mean, married life isn't what you thought it would be when you find yourself the parent of a disabled child. And, uh, you know, you weren't even asked in advance or given a warning at the beginning of, you know, this is going to be your lot. And the Bible is not silent on disability. The Bible is permeated with suffering and with sorrow. And it's one of the things that makes it so believable that it's filled with the things that God has said and done to shed light on sufferings and on sorrow and to alleviate suffering. And so we'll see that it's not incidental to the story when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, which we just uh, had a whole message on that because he said that in the last chapter as well. But uh, in verse 5, Jesus says, I'm light of the light of the world. And we're not left in the dark about the meaning of the darkness. That God's light has come into the world. And it's shining on disabilities and on everything else. And God has not left us alone to despair. But he is bringing meaning into our lives. So ask God to open your eyes. And let's walk with Jesus in the light through this text here in God's word says, as he passed by, John 9, verse 1, he saw a man blind from birth. 
Now, life had been very hard for this man. He wasn't able to work. He didn't get the education other uh, young people got. He was desperately poor. He would sit and beg. And Jesus, it's, uh, verse 1 says, Jesus saw him as he passed by, and the disciples noticed that Jesus saw him. And so at verse 2, it says, the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And the question is crucial, but notice that the story didn't begin with the disciples' question or with the disciples seeing the man. The story begins with Jesus seeing the man. So, you know, are you in a tough situation? Are you having a rough time? I mean, Jesus sees. Jesus cares. Jesus knows. He's concerned about you, even if you don't see him. The blind man didn't know that Jesus was walking by But Jesus saw him, the disciples noticed, and they became engaged because Jesus was engaged. So I would ask you just in passing, see people with disabilities like Jesus would. And I don't mean just see them to avoid them. That would be natural. We're not natural people. We're followers of Jesus. And we have the spirit of Jesus in our hearts. And we have been seen and touched in our brokenness by an attentive, merciful Savior. And if you want to be one of the most remarkable human beings on the planet, you know, a Jesus type of person, then see people with disabilities and really see them, move toward them, engage them. And God will show you what to do and what to say. And you'd say, well, I'd love to, but where could I find people like that? None of them are in my sphere of influence or in my circles. Well, then come help in one of our kids' Sunday school classes because there's plenty of parents who have children of disability who've been coming to our church and they have been caring for their child all week and they put their child in Sunday school and come to worship for a a little chance to rest and to worship the Lord. And you could be a huge blessing just by coming along and being a friend for an hour and in the process, you would be blessed. You know, when Jesus saw the, uh, the disciples saw the attention Jesus gave the blind man, they asked this, they blurted out this question, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Now, that was probably not the most compassionate thing to say at the moment. I mean, they assumed it's somebody's fault, and they talk in front of him like he wasn't even there. When I was in training, I was a chaplain intern at UCLA Medical Center. And, of course, a lot of tough cases go there. And I would go and uh, do visitation often in the middle of the night because often people are awake. And it would be absolutely amazing. Suddenly, a, a teaching physician would swarm into the room. I mean, he would walk into the room, but all around him are all these uh, student doctors. And they all just kind of swarm it like a bunch of crows, really, just like that. And they would stand around the bed, and they wouldn't say, good morning, or how are are you, Mrs. Jones? They would talk about her. They'd interrupt. It didn't matter if you were praying or anything. They would just start talking about her in front of her, like you know, she, her, her, the 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 totality of her life was one diseased liver or kidney or whatever her problem was, and uh, they would talk about it. And then, without saying and thank you, they, off they would go. And that's exactly what the disciples do to this guy. He's not a person. He's just an object. He's just a blind man sitting on the side of the road. And they notice Jesus, notice notice him. And so they say, well, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's born blind? And Jesus redeems the awkward moment and their calloused words. And he answers their question, but not in the categories that they're using because they ask for an explanation of the man's blindness. And he gives it to them, but they're asking for an explanation in the category of cause. Who caused it? Who's at fault? And he gives them an explanation in the category of purpose. 
Not what's the cause of the blindness, but what's the purpose of the blindness. Would that be a new way for you to think? To take your problem to God instead of saying, God, why? Why do I have this problem? Why is this happening to me? Instead to say, God, what's your purpose in this and in me? How do I bring you glory in what I'm dealing with here today? Let's try to unpack this a little bit. I mean, is this blindness a punishment for his parents' sin? Or a punishment for his sin? Or some kind of inherited sinfulness already in the womb? I mean, Jesus says, in effect, specific sins in the past don't always correlate with specific suffering in the present. The decisive explanation for this blindness, Jesus says, is not found by looking for its cause, by looking for its purpose. Jesus says, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. I mean, think about it. The point Jesus is making is not that suffering didn't come into the world because of sin. Because it did. When God gave free choice right at the beginning, he created people, gave them free choice. And by Genesis 3, they have already messed it up and they have chosen wrongly. And so their sin has entered the world and shortly behind it comes suffering. Sin is what brought suffering into the world. All suffering can be traced back to sin. And part of the meaning of the physical horrors of suffering is to reveal the moral horrors of suffering, that when they sinned, the relationship with God was broken. There was a separation from God, and that leads to death. But that's not what Jesus is saying here, nor is he denying it. What he's saying is specific suffering is often not owing to a specific sin. And then he tells them where to look. Look for an explanation of this blindness in the purposes of God. He said it's that the works of God might be displayed in him. The explanation of the blindness doesn't lie in the past cause, but in the future purpose. And Jesus is not obscure. He's saying to his disciples, turn away from your fixation on finding who's to blame and turn away from any surrender to futility or absurdity or chaos or meaninglessness. To say, well, we just don't know or it's just a mixed-up world kind of thing, and turn instead to the purposes of God, that there's no child, there's no suffering outside of God's purposes. And it wasn't that this man sinned or his parents. The blindness came about in order that the works of God might be displayed in this man. Now, that's not the whole explanation of suffering in the Bible. There are dozens of other relevant passages and important points to make, but let me draw two things out of what Jesus talks about, about suffering here. Jesus says the purpose of blindness is to put the work of God on display. This means that for our suffering to have ultimate meaning, God must be supremely valuable to us, more valuable than health and life, to say my life, even the suffering part, is to bring glory to God somehow. And many things in the Bible don't make sense until God becomes your supreme value. Put God number one in your life. I mean, for Jesus, blindness from birth was sufficient explanation for saying God intends to display some of his glory through this blindness. So this man has been blind for what? 20, 30, 40, 50 years? We're not told how old he is. And their parents weren't told, hey, you're going to have a child who's blind. You're going to have to deal with that for years so that in a moment on one day, God can receive the glory. But he does. Now, in this case, he happens to receive the glory by the blindness being healed. 
unheard of in the history of the world to that point, the glory of God's power to heal. But there's nothing to say that it would have to be a healing. For instance, look at the Apostle Paul, the great first missionary who went from place to place starting churches. And he had a disability that uh, was a physical problem. He doesn't tell us exactly what it was, but it might be a blindness as well because he would write with such large letters in his own hand. And he referred to it as his thorn in the flesh. And he came to God and he said, God, please remove this thorn in my flesh so that I can better serve you. And God said to him, as recorded in 2 Corinthians twelve nine, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is demonstrated in your weakness. Or made perfect in weakness. And Paul comes back and says, please God, take it away so I can better serve you. And he hears God say, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And he comes to God a third time and says, God, please remove this thorn from my flesh. And he hears God say, well, you know the answer. No, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is demonstrated in your weakness. I will put my power on display, God says, not by healing you, but by sustaining you. So in other words, healing displays the works of God in John 9. And sustaining grace displays the works of God in 2 Corinthians 12. And what's common in in both cases is the supreme value of the glory of God. The blindness is for the glory of God. The thorn in the flesh is for the glory of God. The healing is for God's glory. And the non-healing is for God's glory. Suffering can only have meaning in relation to God. And then look what Jesus says next. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Now this means two things. One is that the works of God referred to in verse 3, the works of God might be displayed. These works of God will be done through the hand of Jesus. Jesus is going to heal this man's blindness. And the works of God are the works of Jesus because Jesus is God. In fact, Jesus was God before he was born. Before he had the name Jesus, Jesus is God when he came into this world and lived and died among us and then was raised from the dead. And Jesus is God today. He's, he's he present here. He's closer than your next breath. And second, what Jesus is saying is we must do this miracle quickly because night is coming and my work will be over. The opportunity will have passed. And Jesus is going to turn in his ministry, and we're headed toward that in the book of John, from a ministry of healing to a ministry of dying. He's going to turn from the day work of relieving suffering to the night work of suffering himself. He will finally submit totally to the plan of his father and the son will be swallowed up by the sin and the suffering of the world. And Jesus is suffering that the works of God might be displayed in him. The works of wrath bearing and curse removing and guilt lifting and righteousness providing and death defeating and life giving. And in the end, suffering removing. Now may God give you eyes to see the display of his works in his son Jesus. And in Jesus' suffering for you, for me, for disabled children, 
They're all expressions of his love. And over every sorrow and every disability and every loss embraced in faith for the glory of God will be written in blood what Paul penned in 2 Corinthians 4 where he said this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we look to th- not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen because what is seen is temporary. It's transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. You and I are called to be the people of God who can see where the world cannot see because God gives us spiritual insight. And the implication of this in your life and mine is profound because no matter what pain or what mess you're in, regardless of the causes of the mess or the pain, those are not decisive in explaining it. What is decisive in explaining it is God's purpose. What is God's purpose in your life? And in our church. And some of those things that we struggle with are our fault, yes. And some of them are not. But the causes are not decisive in determining the meaning of your pain or your mess. What's absolutely decisive is God's purpose. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, Jesus said, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so then you get to verse 6 and 7, the actual healing of the man born blind. And it says, having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. Now here's an observation that sets the stage for the question, who is this Jesus? How are we to respond to Jesus? Who says God's work is going to be shown here and then he does the work himself? He's God. And I'll tell you ahead of time what's going to happen. This forces, in a sense, a fork in the road. People go two distinct directions. The controversy that follows is all designed by God to show that Jesus is God and people have to choose. And it leads some towards blasphemy and some towards worship. The blasphemy is in verse 24. It says, for the second time, the Pharisees called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know this man's a sinner. In other words, God gets glory when you call Jesus a sinner. Now, Jesus is God and he's perfect. So to call him a sinner is blasphemy. But that wasn't the only response to the healing that day of this blind man. There's also worship. It's in verse 38. It's the climax of the story. It's the last thing the blind man or the ex-blind man does in the text before he disappears from the story is he worships Jesus. Lord, I believe, he says, and he worshiped him. So that's where the story is going. Jesus has himself done the works of God, and those who have eyes to see... Say with uh, those from John chapter 1 verse 14, we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That's what the blind man saw. That's what the Pharisees could not see, which is why the chapter ends with blindness just like it began, but of a worse kind. So let's see how things unfold towards blasphemy and worship. You first, I suppose, ask why mud? Why did Jesus use mud to heal the blind man? And I, I want to suggest two reasons. One is explicit in the text and the other is implied. First, Jesus did it because it was against the law to do this on the Sabbath. It was against the Pharisees' understanding of the law. I mean, 
Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy is one of the Ten Commandments. And then even in Exodus 20, where the, old, the Ten Commandments are listed, there are several paragraphs of explanation that says to keep the Sabbath means no work, worship, and rest. No work, worship, and rest. Well, the Pharisees had made layer after layer after layer after layer of meaning of what it meant to no work, no work. And Jesus is trying to buzz through some of that. And so he seems to do some of his best work, some of his best stuff on a Sabbath day to create or unleash a controversy that's going to push people to say, are you going to worship because he's the king of kings and lord of lords? Or are you going to blaspheme him because he didn't do it your way? You can see this in verse 13 and 14. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, I never know what to call the guy anymore. Now, he's not the blind man anymore. He was a beggar. We do have one of our men's Bible studies that meets at Caro's restaurant over off of Marguerite on Wednesday morning, 6.30. And um, what I loved about that group, um, you know, started by Bob Lowell and Wayne Johnson, and the men like to use names with each other as a sign of closeness and affection, but they can't always remember each other's names, Pete. So they'll put in a name, George, wherever you'd really need a name, Bill. And then you can see, Scott, that that way when you've used a name, Dale, well, then you feel closer to the person, uh, you know, Bill, even though you don't remember their name. And so they will just do that on a regular basis. And nobody's offended. They know when you use a name, you were talking, uh, you know, you were talking to them. And so... As, as kind of a cool way to go about it. So the Pharisees have developed all these rules about how to interpret whether you're working or not working on the Sabbath. And one of the things that they had prohibited as work was the kneading of dough. Well, the word here for clay or mud is the same as the word dough. Jesus has broken the law against kneading dough or clay or mud. It's considered work. Now, why did he do it on the Sabbath? Why didn't he wait till the next day? Well, it says in Matthew 12, 8, that he wanted to show that he was Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus defines the Sabbath to show what the point of the Sabbath rest is. The Sabbath is about rest. Rest is about catching your breath. It's about refreshment. It's about healing. It's about moving towards wholeness. That's why you rest for healing. The point of the Sabbath rest is that we're helpless and God creates and God sustains and God heals. We don't. What day could be a better day for God incarnate to find a broken man and to heal him, to give him and his parents rest from all the struggles that they've had because of his blindness? That's what the Sabbath is for. God exalting blessing to broken and weary humans. Now, most of us aren't very good at Sabbath. We treat it like every other day. We're in too much of a hurry. We don't really take God's word seriously. We, we overload it like we would any other day and to our own detriment. Because God says take one day a week and commit it to no work, rest, and worship. He gives us that in his word. And Jesus did this work or this miracle on the Sabbath to trigger this controversy that goes on for the next 41 verses because hearts are exposed. Some just keep getting harder and harder regardless of the evidence. And at least one heart is shaped and faith grows in it and the faith gets strengthened. And George becomes clearer and clearer about who Jesus is. And he becomes stronger and stronger in his courage in defending Jesus against very dangerous adversaries. And that's what Jesus is after. Clear sight of who he was. Courageous confession of faith and worship. And the expression of the 
tragically blasphemous hearts that say, regardless of the evidence, I'm not going to believe in him. So that's the first reason for the mud, is that they did it on the Sabbath. That makes it work. So now they have a controversy. Is this from God? Because it sure looks like a huge miracle. Or is it not because you broke the rules? The second reason for the mud is to show that God usually uses means in doing his work in this world. He uses means. Jesus could have walked past. I mean, he was walking past the blind man when he noticed him. All he had to do is say, be healed. The guy would have been healed. I mean, he could have said, duck, duck. Goose. Be healed. Well, he could with us too. I mean, think about it. If God wanted, he could, he, you know, he already gave us this beautiful piece of property. He could build all the buildings on the top. He wouldn't even have to ask the city. They could just be there the next morning. And, and we, you know what I'm saying? But God doesn't seem to work that way. He uses means. He uses people like us so that it shapes our character and helps us to grow and helps us learn to become generous like God and helps us to struggle and helps us to be a witness to, to our neighbors. And I mean, God has a purpose in that. He uses means. He could just speak it into existence, but he doesn't. And he didn't for this blind man. He he put the mud on his eyes and then he gave him a task. If the guy had said, you know, I'm going to just sit here, the mud will dry and then I can see. No, obedience preceded the miracle. Obedience. So God uses means. Most of the wonders of God in the Old Testament were brought about by the use of human means. God is decisive in the victory, but he uses means. He didn't need the mud, but he used the mud. So God doesn't despise the physical world that he has made. He uses the means of food to alleviate hunger and to sustain life. He uses a thousand remedies to bring healing from sleep to penicillin, from riboflavin to radiation, from sunshine on the skin to cough syrup for the throat. It's no small thing for God to use means to accomplish his purpose. His purposes are that the glory of his work would be revealed and on display. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And so does all the rest of the creation for those that have eyes to see. Jesus used mud. We could use mud or medicine, doesn't matter. The difference is how close to the surface the miracle is. I mean, let your life be full of wonder at the works of God and full of worship, just like Joe here in the story. I mean, it says Jesus sent him to wash in the pool of Siloam. Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. The name of the pool meant sent. And John went out of his way to point that out, probably because the pool... Is full of water that has sent from a spring that's quite a ways away. And that Jesus is making a comparison here between the pool that is called sent and himself as the one sent from the Father, bringing the living water. And he says in verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me. And if so, then as the water of life, he brings not only cleansing, but healing and life itself. Well, what happens next is about five conversations that we don't have time to read that, that happen in quick succession. Uh, and, and so I'll just tell you about them, and you can read the rest of the story in John 9 later. But uh, Bill, or whatever his name was, uh, first gets into a conversation with his neighbors. They say, wow, look at this guy. He looks just like he's been sitting here all the time. He's wearing the same clothes. His face looks just the same. And he goes, I'm the guy. They said, well, but you were blind. How can you see? 
And he says, this man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. And at this point, he simply calls Jesus the man. He knows his name, but he just refers to him as the man. The next little conversation, you have the beggar and the Pharisees. And they want to know, how did he do it? What did he do to open your eyes? And something's happened in the interchange because they ask him, what do you think about this guy who opened your eyes? And he says, he's a prophet. So he's not just an ordinary man sent from God. He is a prophet. Well, the Pharisees then go and meet with the parents. And that's the third little conversation. And they say, tell us about your son, who you say was born blind. I said, oh, we know he's our son. And we know he's born blind. And we know he can see now. Now, how that happened, we don't know. He's old enough. Ask him yourself. John tells us, because they were afraid. Because the Jews had said anybody who believed Jesus was the Christ was going to be kicked out of the synagogue. And they're scared. And their fear kept them from greater faith. The fourth conversation here is between Tim and the Pharisees because he's back in front of them. And you've got to see the courage of this man, somebody who's uneducated, now who's standing in front of the most educated religious people of the land. He's been called into the principal's office. It seems like he's in big trouble. They're wanting to quiz him a second time. And yet he holds his own because he was blind, but now he can see. And they say, give glory to God. We know this man's a sinner. In other words, join us in our blasphemy or we're going to excommunicate you. Call Jesus a sinner. And he gives his most famous statement. I don't know whether Jesus is a sinner or not. One thing I know, once I was blind, now I can see. See, that's the power of a personal testimony. It's great. What has Jesus done for you? He didn't try to uh, apostolize or, or, or hypothesize or anything. He just said, here's what Jesus did. I was blind, now I can see. And the truth is going deeper and he's getting stronger and his vision is getting sharper about Jesus. And they say, well, tell us again, how did he do it? And he even, he taunts them. He says, why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become one of his disciples? And they go, they reviled him. They said, you're his disciple. We're a disciple of Moses. We don't know where this guy comes from. And this controversy exposes their other deceit. They're not a disciple of Moses. Jesus already told them, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me because he wrote about me. Now we start to see who's really blind in the story. And the blind man's courage for Jesus continues to grow. And he says, that's the most amazing thing. I was blind and now I can see it's never happened in the history of the world. And you say you don't know where this guy came from and you're educated? It's kind of what he says. And they say, this is astonishing. And they cast him out with contempt. I said, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? Well, yes, he'd become their teacher. The ex-blind man was seeing more and more clearly, and their blindness was getting worse. And the last little conversation is between Jesus and this blind man. Maybe he's blind Bart. (laughs) It's significant that Jesus initiates. He goes and finds him, and Jesus says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he says, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus says, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you now. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And that's the last thing we see, and that's the point of the story. Jesus does the work of God, and Jesus is the glory of God, and Jesus is to be worshiped. He's more than just the man. He's more than just a prophet. He is to be worshiped because he is God. And he came into this world to seek and to save the lost people who would worship him in spirit and in truth. Let me quickly, in closing, give you three statements of truth from this passage. Number one, God is wise and he has a purpose for everything that happens to you. 
Number two, Jesus is the only path to the joyful experience of that purpose. And number three, Jesus is seeking for you right now. You know, if you need a Savior, while we sing our last song, you come down and, and speak with me and we'll have somebody pray with you. It takes the courage to say, I need a Savior. I believe Jesus is that Savior and I'm choosing him today. Shall we pray? Dear God, I thank you for what you could do in a blind man that you could make him see. And people who thought they could see who really were blind. Now I pray that you will speak to us this morning. Do we need to draw closer to you and invite you into our heart? Thank you for your word. Now help us to respond in, a, in trust and in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.